0: I'm Ben Weingarten.
1: I'm Emily Drushinsky.
0: I'm Will Chamberlain.
1: I'm Inez Stettman.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as always, we've got a diverse array of topics to cover this week. I am going to lead us off with the latest developments in Missouri v. Biden, maybe the seminal free speech case in the digital era. Next, Emily is going to talk a little bit about this uh, powwow between Russia and China, the two strategic partners against the U.S. and really most of the West. Uh, Will is going to talk a little bit about kind of the information warfare aspect of the war between Israel, Hamas, and other enemies in the region. And then last but not least, Inez will take us home to talk a little bit about what the polling shows regarding what Americans think about Israel and the generational splits on that issue. So uh, I'll kick it off with talking about what's happened in Missouri v. Biden, as everyone here and all of our viewers, I'm sure, are familiar with Missouri v. Biden is the seminal case in which the plaintiffs allege that a variety of government agencies plus the biden white house coerced cajoled and ultimately colluded with social media companies sometimes allegedly also using third-party very closely government-linked cutouts to get the social media companies to deamplify tweets, slap labels on Facebook posts, and remove content and whole accounts uh, under the guise of combating mis dis- and malinformation. And there are a number of buckets of content that the plaintiffs allege were suppressed. But among them, of course, there's the Hunter Biden laptop story, virtually everything around questions about election integrity and outcomes in the 2020 election, and then morphing to a focus on all aspects of coronavirus from origins to draconian lockdowns to vaccine efficacy and on and on. And so uh, as folks know, on July 4th, the judge in the Western District of Louisiana, the district judge overseeing that case, ruled that on the merits, there was great merit essentially to the plaintiff's claim that by coercing and pressuring the social media companies to censor, that the social media companies themselves became essentially deputized federal speech police and that the federal government was violating, was likely violating the First Amendment rights of the plaintiffs and millions of Americans by proxy. And so the judge issued this injunction freezing federal government-led speech policing during the pendency of the case. The government immediately challenged that. There were a series of back and forths uh, at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Ultimately, a modified form of this injunction was upheld on several of the defendants, though not all of them. The injunction that was upheld was narrower than the one that the judge in Louisiana had imposed. But the feds continued to fight it and appealed it up to the Supreme Court and asked that if the court asked the court essentially to stay the freeze on Fed led speech policing that is freeze the freeze on it. And potentially take up the case. And now the feds have granted, uh, rather, the SCOTUS has granted CERT. And in granting CERT, essentially they're going to grapple with several questions. So, among those questions are one the question of standing for the plaintiffs in the case, which are the states of Missouri and Louisiana and prominent dissenting doctors from COVIDian orthodoxy and a conservative website and a health care, health freedom activist group. Uh, They're also going to look at maybe the most important question, which is whether the feds did in fact violate the First Amendment by proxy. And then they're also going to question the legitimacy and scope of the injunction that was imposed on federal authorities, including the aspects of the Biden White House, at the CDC, the FBI, and CISA as well. So major questions to be grappled with, I think many people are cheering the fact that The Supreme Court is going to take up this case. The fact that a district court and then an appellate court have said that there is merit to the claims of the plaintiffs uh, is obviously a potential massive win for freedom. Now, the downside of the fact that the feds are taking up this case is that they are they are staying the freeze on Fed led speech policing, which means that for months now, the feds up until the case is dealt with, the feds are going to be able to continue potentially leaning on social media companies to suppress wrong think, including in the middle of a intensely heated election cycle. Uh, to that end, there were a few dissenters on the stay issuance aspect of this, including Justices Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, which is probably going to preview in part You know who's going to lead the case that there were First Amendment violations when the court does grapple with the questions. Uh, there are any number of, I think, really poignant remarks that Justice Alito made in his dissent. Uh, I think maybe kind of the the most important one is what how we conclude saying that what the court has done I fear will be seen by some as giving the government a green light to use heavy-handed tactics to skew the presentation of views on the medium that increasingly dominates the dissemination of news I.E social media. he also has a quote where he says, Government censorship of private speech is antithetical to our democratic form of government, and therefore today's decision is highly disturbing. That is the decision not to maintain the freeze on the speech policing. He also acknowledges essentially that by imposing this freeze, that they are going to be leaving political speech open to suppression in the midst of the election cycle. So. You know, again, sort of like the Fifth Circuit, which originally omitted CISA from its injunction and narrowed the injunction, we sort of got a qualified victory there. They ultimately corrected their error, in my view, and imposed the injunction on CISA. I think we're getting a a potential partial victory here. That the court is taking this up is a great thing to the extent they rule rightly. But in the interim, speech remains under assault on social media. Uh, That's how I see it. I'm curious what you all make of the significance of the case and, and what you make also of the court staying the injunction?
2: I think that my, my big thing that I noticed during the week was that I thought people were a lot very optimistic about the results of this and very positive on the Supreme Court taking the case. But given the posture, the fact that the district court had imposed this injunction and the Fifth Circuit had, you know, essentially refused to stay it, the fact that the Supreme Court is not only taking the case, but had lifted the stay was a was a bad augury, right? This is not a good sign for the outcome of the case for the free speech side. Um, and the fact, especially with you know three dissenters who are notably the fr- generally the most pro free speech members of the court in Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, like that's it's not. This is actually kind of scary. Uh, I'm worried about what the outcome is going to be here. That's not to say that this is a lost case by any means. And certainly, I'm sure Kavanaugh and, and Barrett and will listen to the arguments of Roberts as well. Um, and that by by no means is is a reversal guaranteed here. But I'm not I'm not optimistic. I think the the best outcome here would have been for this case not to be heard by the Supreme Court. For them to just have just let the Fifth Circuit's decision stand and leave leave the freeze intact, kind of on the ground, you know, and on the theory that there really isn't the Fifth Circuit was just right, and there's no need for us to hear it um, here anymore. So um, I'm concerned that we're going to get a bad not just this you know in short term problem of political suppression of speech being allowed. By the government over the next, you know, next 12 months. But I'm also very worried about the possibility of just losing this case and having a really bad precedent come down on state social media censorship.
1: I also do find this to be a very frightening scenario. And especially, you know, so sisa is actually something that Congress is debating at the moment. And there are a whole lot of Republicans, uh, including, you know, People that are are you know, generally looked favorably upon by the conservative movement, someone like Mike Gallagher, We're defending parts of CISA um, and basically, in effect, defending the whole of CISA. So I, I just wanted to put that out there. I, I agree. I think we're heading into a, a somewhat scary uh, sort of territory here uh, as it relates to CISA and, and as it relates to how the court might make this decision.
3: I mean, not much to add to what Ben and Will have already laid out. Um other than to reiterate once again that it's incredibly important that our constitutional structure and the legal system understand how the public and private work together to circumvent basic rights of Americans um and the understanding and the development of a legal doctrine that that has contact with reality in this this scenario and doesn't rely on this kind of false separation um, as in terms of the on the ground facts between, uh, public and private actors and actually recognizes that they can sort of interact together, um, to, to produce a certain outcome that the government could not produce by itself because of constitutional limitations. Um, I, I said when we originally, uh, brought up this case several weeks ago, uh, that, that I think this will be a doctrine that's developed over the course of decades, um, and in, in some sense, that's understandable, right? This is a new new structure of oppression, in my view, a new structure of like tyranny and the way that uh, it, these kinds of things can be uh, effectuated. Like censorship can be effectuated, so in some sense it's understandable. You know, the court is is uh, reluctant to to sort of dive into it, but in this case they are picking up this court. I'm I'm worried. I I agree with everything that Will said. Um, seeing the the uh, posture that this case is getting picked up under. Um, that being said, even the fact that they are reviewing. Uh, this under First Amendment grounds to me already represents, and this is perhaps t- due to the Fifth Circuit, um, already represents a step forward in terms of the doctrinal and legal thinking um, of this this issue, which is not just to do with censorship, right? Like this case is about this public-private partnership for censorship, but there are many other cases in which, and we've we've you know laid out over the the course of months here on this podcast over and over again how have agency actors and then you know uh, people in Fortune 500 companies and um and how they they can to work together to basically circumvent the ability of Americans either to exercise their constitutional rights or to to um exercise their civ- genuinely civil rights like to to be able to for example to determine the future of cultural issues and that are clearly state issues right um think about you know women's sports in in South Dakota and the the interference between politics and the private sector there and the, the relationships between the state government and the private sector um, in South Dakota so like uh, I think this is an issue that Again, it would be an extremely good thing if the court could start recognizing the reality of these relationships, and I th- I think it's hopeful even with all the caveats and worries that um, Will and Ben put forward. I think it's hopeful that the court is at least considering this um, under a First Amendment structure because I think it represents the correct way of thinking about um, how these different actors work together and and the ultimate result, uh, which in this case is is censorship uh, of of American. Uh, americans expressing their domestic political views
0: so while we're on the subject of uh, intellectual battle and information warfare some of which takes place on social media let's turn it over to will to talk about what's going on in the information war on israel versus its arab foes so yes we have had uh two major
2: events My cat's coming in to say hi, who wants to say hello. Um, Two major events in the past week, which have been subject of like a major information war from the pro-Palestinian side. The first was the alleged hospital bombing, which was everything about it was false, right? They said that it was Israel bombing a hospital. In reality, it was Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocketing a parking lot in the middle of a hospital. So false in three out of three respects. And then there was the second one, which was less of a glaring falsehood, but still very deceptive in the sense that there was this statement that uh, Israel had bombed a church. In reality, they had bombed a building adjacent to a church, um, which sadly did kill a number of Palestinian civilians, including a few of Justin Amash's uh, relatives. But in both cases, essentially, there was this massive information campaign by pro-Palestinian accounts on Twitter to try and um, spread a narrative that Israel had done something beyond the pale. And you know, if you actually look at some of the accounts that have grown massively in the last few weeks since the Israel Gaza war started, one in particular, Jackson Hinkle has grown from like a 300,000 follower account to a 1.3 million follower account in weeks. Um, There's a there's an interesting dynamic where that 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 comes from taking just an absolute absolutist pro Palestinian line um, in politics, and that there's just this, this sea of support for that. And you're wondering, okay, well, where's that coming from? Well, you know, it's a reminder that Muslim Twitter is is huge. There are 1.9 billion Muslims in the world and only 16 million Jews. And it's, it's, sometimes it's actually kind of easy to forget that fact that, um, in general, the pool of natural pro-Israel support is much, 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 much inf- smaller than the pool of natural pro-Palestine support. And so you get this just wave of not only, you know, falsehood, but essentially encouraged falsehood and encouraged BS um, coming from the pro-Palestinian side that is just it over, it's, it's almost overwhelming. And, and, you know, the IDF, I think to their, and Israel and to their credit are doing a pretty good job of like put, you know, combating it in the sense of being really, really scrupulously honest. Like if you follow Jonathan Kenrikas who's their spokesman and the IDF official account um, they are extra clearly extraordinarily careful to try and put out things that are true uh, and to tell the truth about exactly what it is their operations are. So when it came to the hospital strike, they were put out, this is not us. Here's a bunch of different ways we can prove it wasn't us, et cetera. And then the church, right, they just said, look, we admitted it, this is what we were targeting, and this is why. But they're in the unique position that they just have to tell, they have to be completely scrupulous about the truth because they're in this battle where their, their adversaries have the benefit of numbers, just an enormous overwhelming numbers um, and broader sympathy on the left. And you know, even when it came to, for example, the mainstream media, there was just this reflexive reporting of everything Hamas said. Um, And it's a really, I haven't like, I don't have a huge number of conclusions to draw from it on a macro level. And I'm curious what you guys all think about what Israel should do from this. One is that community notes are absolutely essential. Like I'm as big a free speech advocate on the internet as anybody, but community notes are really important as a corrective to people who just make a business model out of spreading BS and make a business model out of lying. Like there has to be some sort of broader corrective from the public. Um, and if anything, I'd like there to be a little more enforcement on the community note side, like in the sense that if you keep BSing on community notes, maybe you get a poop emoji next to your name or something for a period of time. Um, but that that's one part of it. And then the second is like how challenging it is to deal more broadly, like with the situation that Israel's in, like, again, you just forget they're just this, they're just a huge minority relative to the broader Arab world. And so, uh, It's kind of the whole reason, one of the tweets I did yesterday was, it's kind of the whole reason there needed to be a state of Israel in the first place is that you can't trust the broader world to treat the Jews fairly, in general. So, I'll leave it there.
3: Um, I mean, it's a good reminder, you know, America is extraordinarily blessed uh, geographically, right? Um, It's a good reminder, Israel is, you know, the size of New York City, population-wise, land-wise, the size of New Jersey, and it's surrounded by half a billion Muslims um, in mostly hostile countries towards it, um, more or less, some of them more, some of them less, right? Um, And so this image that we have of Israel, and I think this has hit home very much for uh, American Jews as well, is especially those under the age of, let's say, 40, uh, we have this invincible image of Israel as... Much more technologically advanced, much more powerful, much more militarily powerful than um, the the countries around it, and and we uh, we just have this image that that isn't true, um, that that glosses over the precarity, like the inherent precarity of uh, the Israeli position in in the Middle East, and I think that's just basically everyone born after the Yom Kippur War, um, right, which uh, is the last time that Israel was existentially threatened, um, and. So yeah it's it's good it's good to be reminded of of that reality whether you're in the Middle East or uh here in in America and 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 blessed with Great uh, geography, as, as much as we dislike the cartels on our open southern border, um, Mexico as a state is not like inherently hostile to us. Canada is obviously not inherently hostile to us. And we have oceans on either side and a very, very big country. Um, and that those are all sort of blessings uh, rained uh, upon America in terms of of geography. Um, and which still matters even in, in the 21st century. Um, in terms of, of the, the sort of online war, uh look this is this is now the the second um war that will be fought like with full social media coverage um i think that's both good and bad but it, you know obviously like during uh, the early days of of the russian invasion of ukraine we also had all the the stuff that was circulating on social media some of it propaganda some of it was true some of it turned out not to be true propaganda from both sides like it was interesting to watch in live time you know you we, we think about the propagandas leaflets being dropped in World War II, but that this is this is you know, this is war, right? Um, in this case, as as uh, will said, it's it's interesting Israel has to be completely transparent um, in in a way because they are and, and in a way sadly because the the posture of the world um, is is largely against them from the start. and nothing could make that clearer than the fact that these attacks on Israel before Israel had retaliated, at all um are what spurred these nationwide condemnations and protests against it right before it had dropped a single bomb in gaza um there was already condemnation of israel when they were the aggrieved party they were attacked uh by an incursion into their border and in the most savage and brutal way possible right um and yet before they retaliated they were already on the back foot in the pr war um And and nothing could make that clearer uh, in terms of disinformation, real disinformation uh, online than the fact that they have to screen for uh, international uh, press corps. In the last few days, they have screened 43 minutes of footage uh, recorded, for the most part, recorded by terrorists themselves um, of the various atrocities. Things that they had hoped, I think, to keep out of the media for the sake of the families, um, because there was immediately this this uh, machine that kicked on in, you know, on on social media that Will is talking about that that um, not only spread this this false story about about the hospital, um, but also then denied that, for example, that that there was rapes that took place when in fact apparently the the rape was so brutal that uh, it broke the pelvises of young women all the way to grandmother age um, that denied that there were beheadings. It turns out there were beheadings of, of babies, um, among many other horrible things that were done to children. Right. Uh, and, and Israel has had to screen that, that footage for the press corps in an attempt to combat, uh, the assertions that essentially they are exaggerating, uh, the, the violence that, that took place on October 7th. So, um, those are some, some aspects. And then finally, I guess, uh, in line with the the blessing the geographic blessings of the united states um we we kind of have the the luxury of not caring very much what the world thinks um being as powerful a country as we are uh, because israel is so small because their enemies are so disproportionately larger um and and for many other reasons too numerous to list you know israel does have to care about the pr war um they they can't it's going to ultimately have a very practical effect on what they are essentially permitted by the international community in the United States to do. So they have to care about that in a way the U.S. doesn't, fortunately for us.
1: I think there's something, especially when you've, we've seen polling of younger Americans, like 18 to 34 demographic. I don't have the information right in front of me uh, so I can read the numbers, but I think there has been some very obviously concerning polling about, uh, and one I'm thinking of is a Harvard-Harris poll about what percentage of young people, uh, oh yeah, Inez is talking about this later, but I don't have the numbers in front of me, that's all I have to say, Uh, Inez will later, um, what percentage of young people think uh, this is all justified by Hamas. And uh, In the context of this segment, all I want to say is I think young people especially are not used to not understanding exactly what happened at any given time. Uh, That is to say, they see footage that feels very real to them coming out of TikTok um, or on Twitter or on Instagram. And they're told that this is from Gaza. They are told that this is from Israel. And uh, it's very sort of desensitizing. It's enormously confusing. I think all of us uh, are relatively young but grew up in a different era uh, when, you know, your your glimpse into Gaza, your glimpse into Israel came from a CNN camera. Uh, and obviously that's shifted enormously over the last 15 years. And so we've sort of been able to get used to it as it was developing. Uh, but for people who are young right now, this was basically a mess um, in their formative years. and continues to be the mess that we're in now uh, is the mess that they are, are growing up in. Uh, and so I just I cannot imagine in this media climate what it's been like, especially for younger people. I'm not justifying or excusing any bad ideas. I think we could have a whole conversation about the roots of uh, some of their ideological problems. Uh, but it is just we are failing people um, on that that big question. And I, I find it very hard even to wrap my head around as someone who's you know just only 30, uh, let alone somebody
0: who's like 21. Well, to that end, I mean, first of all, you need a people who can think critically and calmly and deliberately when it comes to matters of war and peace. And, you know, we've raised generations of people, including by the by the of the technology itself, that are not able to think long and hard about issues. So then when you have propaganda amplified to the nth degree, that fits in a paradigm that they've been people have been propagandized in for you know, decades now of oppressor and oppressed and the imperialists and all of the other, uh, really Soviet era propaganda, which much of the Arab world glommed onto, particularly around the Palestinian Arab cause, uh, it's ready made for people to be heavily propagandized and indoctrinated. Um, you know that the that the corporate media, legacy media itself, has taken the side that it's taken is not at all surprising. You can go back and read you know, Matty Friedman back in twenty fourteen talking about this, and you can go back throughout history. And you can look at the press essentially being on the anti-Israel side of things. So not at all surprising that they got it horribly wrong. Of course, the most quote unquote authoritative voices are the most prominent and prolific purveyors of dis, and malinformation while they call for censoring it. The only silver lining in this situation, and it's a situation where the peril is probably greater than ever before because there's always propaganda and war and there's always a fog of war. But now the information can travel and maybe look more credible at a faster speed than ever before. And because the weaponry is also uh, more powerful and quicker, it can cause massive miscalculations in real time in a way that maybe it couldn't before. But the only silver lining I'd say is, thank God there is a Twitter, for example, that allows for counter-narrative and counter-messaging because for a time there would have been only the corporate media, a few networks and a few print publications, and everyone would have been indoctrinated in misdis and malinformation here. So uh thank God we have social media for situations like these. Uh, and on that note, we will talk now with as about what the polling shows about public opinion on Israel, Hamas and beyond.
3: Yeah, just to follow up on Emily scooping me uh on my segment. Um there, there's been a number of polls, but the one I'm going to cite, um, I think, makes this this clearer. Um, and it's a very straightforward poll, in a sense, um, because the wording of these things is quite tricky. But it, it asks whether the attacks of October 7th um, are justified or not justified by the grievances of Palestinians. Um, and I think it's a good way to phrase the question, right, because it, it separates out people um, who might Otherwise, think you know about this is long-running Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Um, might otherwise have some sympathies and/or think, for example, that the the most popular phrase of the last uh, sort of disinformation phrase, uh, of the last phase of this this war, uh, the the cycle of violence, right? Um, it separates out the cycle of violence people. So this is just people who say these attacks specifically are justified or not justified by Palestinian grievance against Israel. Um, and you start out with boomers, right? 65%, uh, 65 years or older. Um, you start out with only 9% of boomers think that these attacks are justified, right? And then with every successive de- 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 decade, <laughs> decile of, um, of, of, uh, age, right? You see this number is dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. So 55 through 64, 11% from 9 to 11%, barely a bump, right? Um, In terms of people who think that these attacks are justified, 45 to 54, 23%. So just in that decade, you have a doubling, um, more than doubling of the number of people who think these kinds of attacks are justified. And then there's a hard break, essentially with millennials, 35 to 44, um, 39%. Okay, so we're already talking about uh, nearly four in ten people, older millennials, think that these kinds of attacks are justified. You go further down 25 to 34, 48%, and you're nearly at 50-50. And then finally, 18 to 24, finally a majority in favor, not of any kind of pro-Palestinian, not in favor of two-state solution, but these attacks are justified by Palestinian grievance. The majority of people from 18 to 24 in the United States believe these attacks are justified and so you know this is this is just one issue this this israeli palestinian conflict but you will you will see a similar pattern and we have been seeing a similar pattern on any basic cultural proposition in the united states is the united states a good country is the united states racist right are we the good guys are you do you feel proud to be an american we see a very very similar pattern and to people who who find this surprising or shocking, um, I would say. You know, you really have to re-examine your worldview um, and see where it does not align with the reality. Um, this is the obvious result of allowing the hard, like cultural left, the New Left of 1968, to take over the American education system, combined with demographic change. That those are the two factors driving it on this issue and on many other domestic issues of import. This massive generational. Uh, uh, sort of tr- um, trends, right? Away from things that were once considered not so long ago, when you know you had a higher proportion of people in these 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 upper three bands, right? Um, whether they were Republican or Democrat, that they were just supposed to be, you know, basic propositions like the United States is a good country, Western civilization is superior to other civilizations. These kinds of basic propositions, you will find. A pattern like this in in a generational polling on nearly every one of those questions. And it's important to understand that. Um, and both to do short-term things um, both domestically and abroad to use the majority we have now um because of older voters, but also to think structurally as we I know we do, you know, week after week on this podcast, to think structurally about how we can stop and reverse this kind of trend um uh, because i promise you this is far from exclusive to you know the israeli palestinian issue and finally even within the democratic party this is even more pronounced and you can see that struggle playing out in live time between the statements that president biden will make supportive of israel And then the inability of his staff or sometimes the outright rebellion of his staff um, to follow those kinds of directives. So you have the letter signed by 500 staffers, Democratic staffers, congressional staffers anonymously criticizing the Biden administration for being too pro-Israel in in this instance. And then you have the recent exchange from the press secretary's podium, right, where um, uh, Jean-Pierre could not even answer the question about anti-Semitism without immediately pivoting to anti-Muslim bigotry. right? She and those staffers are representative of the next generation of a Democratic Party. And like in so many things, Biden is a transitionary figurehead. Um, So I don't know uh, what you guys think about these kinds of polls, but I see them not as relevant only to this particular conflict, but as generally indicative of the direction, the cultural direction of American society.
2: Yeah, I think it's terrible. Uh, I'll be very brief. Um, Raise the voting age and seize the endowments. Um, I don't see a reason why people under the age of uh, 25 need to be voting. Sorry. (laughs) It's just that's just real talk. I I think that that was the voting age was moved down to 18 in the aftermath of the Vietnam War when we had drafted a bunch of people. We have an all-volunteer force. I think Vivek actually has a very good point, particularly on this issue where he's saying that, you know, if you're if you're young, if you can vote if you serve. Uh, but if you don't serve, then you you can wait till 25. I think that's step one. And then step two is, I mean, our universities are a complete mess. I think Inez has put out a very solid proposal to tax endowments with IWF. Um, we should be treating the universities as a hostile adversarial force in our country, uh, not doing anything to subsidize them. And I think it's still that's still lingering sort of in the Republican Party is, you know, we have a lot of donors who are donating to us, but also giving to their alma maters. And we really should try and get them to stop.
1: It, it, I think this is very much an an indication that, yeah, I, I think this speaks to Western civilization and Western civilization's uh, will to survive, uh, because looking at these numbers now, I mean, I, I think they're very much downstream of the decolonization meme, essentially, that is educating American children. I mean, it's education by meme. Um, it's not to downplay the work that the colleges are doing, but I think uh, kids are paying even more attention to what they're seeing from Mia Khalifa or whatever on social media about colonization um, than they are in their history classes. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's it's education by meme at this point. And I think that's where when you ask questions like this, uh, you're going to get responses like this. And, you know, if, if you fundamentally don't agree that this thing is good, this thing that we all participate in is good. Uh, it's also incoher- incoherent, by the way, with the idea that um, Israel like, is, is committing, as they say, genocide, That absurd allegation that Israel, Israel is committing genocide right now by engaging in a war that they did not start, um, that is ceding the moral high ground to Israel. It is saying that Israel should comply with all of these international norms uh, that we agree on as a Western small L liberal civilization. They know damn well that most of the people in Palestine do not agree with the norms of Western, small-L, liberal civilization. Uh, Let's not kid ourselves. Hamas does not follow the international. They're not just trying to abide by every part of the Geneva Convention uh, but you're seeding the ground that there's that there is a higher moral good um, that you know Western countries and allies of Israel uh, are abiding by that these other countries absolutely wouldn't. So I think it's completely incoherent and I think that's partially another reason this is really sad. Um, but I think at the same time there's just this, this fundamental hatred um, of the West that has been imbued in the minds of a lot of young people and it is we're going to see it spill out. You know, when it when you look at George Floyd, the reaction to George Floyd. When you look at the reaction to the Hamas attack, it's going to we're going to see these kind of uh, explosions of anti-Western sentiment uh, when kids are forced to confront it.
0: Yeah, and I would just add to that that I think the the most acute form of it, though, is seen in the reaction to uh, Israel and Israel defending itself, attacks on Israel, and i made this case in the book i wrote a few years ago american ingrate which is about how i said that ilhan omar despite the fact that she may look extreme on paper for the democrat party actually personified the future of the party if not its present and that that was a coalition which included obviously leftists as well as islamic supremacists and that the glue that cemented these two otherwise disparate parties again on paper Uh, is the Jew hatred and Jew hatred as a proxy for hatred of the Judeo-Christian West and our civilization as a whole. So to that point, I mean, I think what the poll numbers are is a proxy for where these cohorts shake out on a whole slew of other issues. The magnitude of that block of people in America is beyond staggering, though not at all surprising. I wrote about it a few years ago, all of the signs have been there for a long time. Um, I would note, again, you know, I mentioned how the Palestinian Arab population kind of colluded with the Soviet Union back really in the 60s to kind of seed the these ideas, making it seem as if the struggle was one and the same. And you see that, obviously, in the rhetoric today. I just point to, and I, I pulled these quotes pretty recently. So Yasser Arafat, who is the founder of Fatah, who was Soviet-groomed, here's a direct quote from him. Our struggle is part and parcel of every struggle against imperialism, injustice and oppression in the world. It is the part of the world revolution which aims at establishing social justice and liberating mankind. It's no surprise those words came out of a jihadist mouth. And then Fatah. But also is,
1: Judith Butler. Judith Butler basically <laughs> said the same thing about Hamas.
0: There's It's indistinguishable. Uh, Fatah in 1969, a statement, they wrote, The struggle of the Palestinian people like that of the Vietnamese people and other peoples of Asia, Africa and Latin America is part of the historic process of the liberation of the oppressed peoples from colonialism and imperialism. I think that just sums it up. You can draw a straight line from that rhetoric to where we are today in America. And it augurs the death of our civilization if there isn't an, a serious effort to confront the worldview and root it, rip it out, root and branch. Um, so on that note, let's go now and shift gears almost completely to Emily to talk about China and Russia.
1: They want to sell arms to Hamas to help the right, same. <laughs> the, it's it's a reverse wrong uh, contra. No, okay. Uh, that actually, in in a weird way, is a transition into what I'm going to talk about, which is that Putin and Xi Jinping met last week at a 10 year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Which, uh, speaking of the incoherent takes about people on colonialism, there's a very good conversation to be had about the Belt and Road Initiative as sort of neo colonialism, neo imperialism, as it's uh, allowed China to arguably exploit different places in Africa, South America. Etc. With this uh, actually fairly clever approach towards uh, their hegemony, their their goal of hegemony, and this got very little attention in the media. Uh, perhaps understandably so, because the images coming out of Israel uh, were just continuing continuously shocking. The news was continuously important, but this is perhaps the most important uh, subplot in our geopolitics right now because. We are, and I mean this not hyperbolically, teetering on the precipice of a conflict that could look a lot like a World War III because we are seeing axes and allies start to coalesce in ways that is fairly terrifying, uh, ways that are fairly terrifying under the Biden administration. Putin and Xi Jinping uh, reiterated, uh, fabulously so, their friendship upon meeting Uh, Last week uh, in Beijing, again, this is the third Belt and Road Summit. It was the 10-year anniversary. Uh, They have been moving closer together actually since Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which China has not yet condemned. Uh, They have called for a ceasefire Um, when it comes to Israel. They have tried to play sort of a peace broker in the Middle East, mostly without success, uh, but this is their effort to sort of take over and say, we can do what America is supposed to do. We're just going to do it better. You know, there's there's a lapse of American leadership on the world stage. The American moment is over. So we're going to step into the void and we can be real peace brokers. Um, and, and that's, you know, one conversation. But the other conversation is how very fragile the sort of world order <laughs> is right now. Um, when you look at the Possibility of Iran uh, becoming sort of a, a huge front in what we're we're seeing happen uh, with Israel and Gaza right now, uh, Lebanon. Like we are hanging in the balance. Um, if if there's a major strike from Hezbollah um, and Israel goes towards Iran. Um, you know, reasonably so, again, because of Hezbollah and Iran's connection, Iran and Hamas's connection, uh, if that is, is escalated, um, we're going to be teetering even more on the precipice. Like, this is just a very, very fragile geopolitical ecosystem right now. And I think Putin and, and Xi Jinping's meeting last week underscores that we now have major nuclear powers aligned against the United States um, and whose interests are at stake in a war that has become hot, a, a hot war uh, right now in the Middle East and a hot war in Ukraine. Uh, so the potential um, for just a, a global escalation, uh, especially over Taiwan, um, which Walter Russell Mead and Ross Douthat in the last couple of days have, have noted uh, looms very large over this conversation about Israel. Um, this is going in, I think, really terrifying directions Really quickly, so let me open the floor up to everybody else for their thoughts uh, on the the uh, the the handshake, the meeting, and the professed closeness between both of these countries last week.
2: I guess I'll go. Um, I think it's a you know it's a diplomatic disaster, right? Like I, I look back to what Nixon did in the nineteen seventies, which is Nixon went to China and realize that if there are going to be three great powers in the world, you want to be on the side of two, um, rather than the side of one. And, and right now, our diplomacy and not this isn't really just about the war in Ukraine, it's really more about our diplomacy over the past uh, decade or so has been to push Russia into the arms of China. Um, and I'm not a believer that that really is in the United States best interest. And we kind of, I very much worry that we are wildly overstretched, you, you think about you know, we're trying to add support for Israel, which you don't really ultimately need to do because you know Israel can support defend itself. That combined with Ukraine, we're totally underinvested in dealing with China, which is the obvious biggest threat to our national security, the biggest great power competitor that we're facing. And yeah, I'm I'm very worried about it. I think that it's a it's definitely a failure of American diplomacy that we've gotten to this point. That's not to say that like Russia is justified in whatever it does, but You know certainly the outcome here where it seems like you know we have nato and that's it and basically all the rest of the world's great powers are up against us not a good sign
0: well since you uh invoked nixon and uh i guess kissinger as well at least as a proxy for it um i i went back and i looked once at some of the cables and internal documents uh, that were generated when they were talking about, yeah, this is the Sino-Soviet split. And uh, there's a, a quote from Kissinger that I'm I'm paraphrasing where he said, you know, now we'll have to we'll have to lean towards China, we'll have to lean towards China to split it off from Russia. But down the road, essentially, China is going to become very formidable, and we might have to lean back to Russia. And that that proved prescient. I don't agree with Kissinger on everything or necessarily a lot of things, but. Uh, that did end up proving a oppression uh, premonition. And I think one of the reasons uh, that it was so frustrating that the entire Russiagate narrative was blown up and that there was a moral panic over it is that Trump wanted to try to ensure that Russia and China were cleaved. Not that necessarily there would have been legitimate common ground with Russia and that it wouldn't have tried to Stab us in the back in any kind of way in which we tried to uh, coordinate and have a cessation and hostility with Putin, uh, which would have been helped, of course, because of Trump's strength. Um, But essentially, Russiagate killed any chance of ensuring that we could at least try to keep Russia closer to our orbit than China or try to stir up unrest between Russia and China. And consequently, now you have this senior partner in China, junior partner in Russia. All of their proxies around the world when it comes to China, obviously with North Korea and others that it's trying, trying to curry favor with through Belt and Road and that it is influenced in all manner of ways uh, through its its efforts abroad. Uh, and then obviously Russia as well with Iran and Syria and other powers. Um, so, yeah, we've created a disastrous scenario on which uh, we have this block of enemies and adversaries, many of which their proxies operate in our hemisphere as well. Our borders are wide open. We've uh, eviscerated our dominance in energy, frittered it away completely, and given the game essentially to the other oil-producing countries and then the countries that make the green technologies that we're supposed to transition to, namely China. So all around it's disastrous. Then you have the overstretched nature of the military. You have the woke, woke nature of the military. You have our lack of defense industrial base that's equipped to deal with What's ahead of us, and uh, e- on every single one of these metrics, things look incredibly bleak. Despite the fact that we still have the capability, in my view, to counter anyone who would dare threaten us, it, to me, it, it remains more a question of will than capability. Notwithstanding the major challenges we face, so uh, I agree, it's it's a completely bleak situation, and in many ways, uh, brought upon by a third term of obama biden policies that i i always you know i kind of ask the rhetorical question but if you were trying to empower and embolden your enemies and weaken your allies and yourself what would you do differently than kind of the obama biden agenda and we're seeing the consequences of it the consequences of it are not peace the consequences of it are a world in utter chaos and our interests threatened at home and abroad
3: yeah um couldn't agree more with with ben's summary although um just as always, I'm I'm skeptical that any kind of reset with Russia was ever possible. Every American administration, going honest? back to F FDR, has tried the <laughs> reset um, with Russia. I think there are deep and fundamental uh, hostile uh, feelings between. Uh, actually, largely, I think um, cultural. Not everybody is sort of this mercantile. The rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, we trade together, and it's good for both of us. Uh, not ever not every culture or civilization has this mentality. this is this is an American and to some extent, an Anglo mentality, but generally very, very much agree um with everything that Ben has said and and would would distill distill it in in a question, which is, would we have a hot and bloody war on the European continent, and would this attack have happened uh, in Israel if Trump had uh won the election and become president Trump was president now and I I, I know that these kind of counterfactuals are uh always you know necessarily speculative um, but given the fact that Putin started amassing um troops on on the Ukrainian border under two weeks after we showed the world our rear end uh, in Kabul um not just withdrawing from there but but uh which Trump intended to do too, but I have a hard time believing that, um, it would have been carried out in the way that it was carried out that really demonstrated American weakness so fully, um, to the world. Uh, so that's, that's one. And then two, um, would Iran have been emboldened to care to, you know, plan, help plan fund and really spur this kind of attack in Israel? Um, for starters, they probably wouldn't have had unfrozen $6 billion. Um, but generally, uh, the the pro iran leanings of both and i think it has been said very well the third term of the obama administration uh, because these things really started under the obama administration and were reversed under trump's um those two things alone you know weakness begets chaos um and and i think uh that that's that's a very sobering thing for sort of people who still don't like trump even sometimes i'm in this this camp right um on on the domestic front uh that they're is an enormous difference and an enormous advantage to having an American president uh who is a little unpredictable who isn't beholden uh to to certain group thinks uh of of, of sort of the Washington foreign policy blob um even if I don't always ag- agree that deviations from that are 100% correct all the time um there is an enormous advantage to having a president like that and and we're seeing uh, unfortunately play out in in blood uh the, the the consequence of american weakness and then um this this summit regarding the summit specifically right uh we should be very worried if we were a serious power um uh, we would be very very worried about this um there's also they're they're building a pipeline between uh russia and and china to carry oil um to to shift russia's reliance on the west in terms of selling their natural resources um and and pivoting towards the asian market um one one thing from this summit that I found particularly, just to tie all this together, um, all of this that the fact that there that it's not an accidental alliance um, between sort of Judith Butler, who are the two Judith Butler and Yasser Arafat, right? Um, it's not an accidental alliance. Uh, <laughs> and President Xi actually used the phrase, "This alliance is on the right side of history." Right, so they're very good at at, at echoing the self hating domestic. Lingo of the United States that is so deadly in our ability to rise to what increasingly seems like an era of great powers conflict.
0: So that kind of kicks off our parting shots. And I'll be really brief with a follow up there, uh, a tangential follow up. But I've been tracking, I argued in a piece in The Federalist that uh, there was a coming bear hug between the US and Israel where uh, the Biden administration was going to act like. It was being a friend and an ally and a partner, but in reality, seek to restrain Israel, uh, stop it, deter it from actually pursuing vigorously its national interest, uh, and ultimately micromanage what may end up being something like a quagmire slash stalemate with Gaza as the administration continues to, again, restrain it in all manner of ways. And I just want to point out that there's been some reporting done uh, indicating that israelis are kind of aghast at the idea now that they are uh, in hock to and reliant on uh the u.s essentially selling it weapons and potentially conditioning those sales uh, with strings attached on how they are used and the posture of the Biden administration has taken towards them and how it constrains them uh, and ultimately makes them uh, dependent and reliant on the u.s to dictate israeli policy uh, i think down the road however this shakes out that may well auger israel itself hedging and turning towards other powers who will be less controlling uh, and obviously that it would not be good for anyone's interest ultimately but it would be understandable that they would look abroad to the extent their sovereignty and interests are under threat because of american meddling and intervention and i think That also sends a signal to other powers around the world who look to the U.S. as an ally, a partner, a friend, etc. Are they going to look abroad and look to hedge potentially as a consequence of what we've seen in U.S. treatment of Israel and what I think is going to continue in a bear hug? So uh, something to watch going forward and obviously a disastrous development, I think, all around.
1: Uh,
3: my, my final thought, I'm going to return back home to the domestic. Um, Douglas Mackey uh, was sentenced uh, to prison this week, uh, seven months in prison for posting a meme. Um, I couldn't find this information in all of the articles written about it, including on, on the Department of Justice's website, but I assume this is a felony. The maximum sentence was 10 years. He got seven months. Um, so I assume that in addition to doing seven months in prison, he will lose his right to vote, his right to bear arms, right? Um for posting a meme identical to many memes posted about the election by uh, by Democrats, and there are endless examples of this. Um, and uh, really, this really is, um, I would say, the 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 first sort of parting shot outside of Trump himself on on free speech um, in 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 such a direct way. Um, where you're not even talking about the censorship of social media companies, the subject of Missouri against Biden that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, um, but a very uh, direct use of this this vague statute that is really intended to stave off things like burning a cross on someone's lawn to prevent them from voting, um, to stretch that uh, to apply to memes on the internet about voting on Wednesday or whatever that are literally as old a joke um, as, as there is surrounding elections. Um, but it, it does show that uh, th- there is a piece of um, our justice system that is, is uh, as many other parts of our justice system, are weaponized exclusively against conservatives in a way that is very directly government censoring speech, literally criminalizing uh, you know joke memes on on Twitter. Um, so that is worth paying attention to. Um, it's It's a statute that has come up in the Trump charges. It's a statute that's come up I think in some of the um, January 6 trials as well. I think it will be a statute that the left is going to attempt to stretch and use to cover what is clearly First Amendment protected speech in the United States. So uh, Douglas Mackey going to prison this is this is not a good sign uh, for speech in the United States.
1: You know, I'm curious about the trend of uh, young people reacting to the crumbling of the uh, sort of Pax Americana, um, because I, I do wonder if some things start to rattle them out of uh, the the memified uh, comfort bubble of America is so evil and bad, um, and sadly, I think that's because things are about to get worse. Uh, I wonder if that you know I, I think. I don't know what the breakdown will be. I'm sure for others it'll make them completely double down, as has been the case here, and say this is all America's fault because they're being told that by other know nothings on the internet. Um, on the other hand, I do think the scarier things get, uh, the more moral clarity uh, will will start to appear for some people, and that's one thing that I'm definitely watching for going forward.
2: Um, yeah. So uh, on. Similar to what Inez is talking about, more lawfare. Jenna Ellis had to plead guilty in Georgia court today uh, to one count of aiding and abetting uh, some false statements in court. I don't remember exactly. I don't want to say exactly what the count was, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, more example of lawfare there's been a, a trajectory of these defendants taking no jail plea agreements when they're facing a major felony charge from Fannie Willis and the RICO charge in particular. And it Honestly, the fact that they're taking these plea agreements doesn't really give any indication that they're actually guilty. They're effectively coerced into doing so by these extraordinary sentences that are available under the RICO Act. So um, I feel very sorry for Jenna that she had to do this, um, but it also goes to show just like how ridiculous that particular piece of lawfare is in Georgia and connects more broadly the ridiculous lawfare that's going on against the president, uh, former president, um, something we'll need to keep talking about
0: over the coming weeks. Well, not depressing note. On behalf <laughs> of Emily and Nez and Will, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next snack on squad.